Thanks, Deirdre and Val. It'd be really helpful if you keep your Bibles open at, at 1 Samuel chapter 25 there. We're going to look at that together a bit more now. But let's um, pray again, shall we? Heavenly Father, we do want to be people who share the character of Jesus, who uh, see the way that he lived and the, and the trust in his father that he had, and to also have that trust. And we ask that today you will help us to see what that's like and to live uh, accordingly. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, as I'm sure you're aware, Australia has recently had an election. And during the election, one of the things really we're being asked to consider is what kind of leader do we want to have as a nation? What kind of leader do we want to have? What kind of priorities do we want them to prioritise? What kind of values do we want them to have? And you might have noticed throughout the election campaign, the, the candidates would say, you know, if I'm elected, this is what I will do. This is what I will prioritise. And that kind of question that we were asking, what kind of leader do we want to have, kind of goes hand in hand with what kind of nation do we want to be? Because those two kind of overlap, don't they? That's the, the question that an election puts before us. Well, this chapter in 1 Samuel puts before us a similar kind of question, which is what kind of king and what kind of kingdom does God want? What kind of king and what kind of kingdom does God want? You might have noticed as we came out of chapter 24 last week and into chapter 25, David has a little bit of a reprieve from being relentlessly pursued by Saul, pursued for his life, and it looks like he's kind of getting a bit of a clear run towards the throne. And so as this, comes, as this um, kind of unfolds, it raises for us the question, what kind of king is David, is going, to, is David going to be as he's on his way to the throne? And not, you know, what will his economic policy be, but what will his character be? And particularly, as we look at this chapter today, how will he react when he has been badly treated and insulted? How should God's king respond in that kind of a situation? And as we ask that question, we're also going to be forced to ask for ourselves, what kind of people should we, as followers of God's king, also want to be? That's kind of where we're heading today. And you might have noticed that this chapter really presents to us quite a volatile situation. And it opens really by introducing us to two new, two new characters that we haven't met before, Nabal and Abigail, his wife. And right from the beginning, we're given a bit of a clue as to what these characters are going to be like and how they're going to behave and interact in this story. We're told that Abigail was intelligent and beautiful, but by contrast, her husband Nabal was surly and mean. And he was also rich. In particular, he was rich in sheep. And now we're told it was sheep shearing time, and so he's about to get even richer as he, I guess you could say, harvests the wool from his sheep. But even more than usual, this shearing season, Nabal's flocks have fared remarkably well. They had not experienced any of the losses that are all too common for shepherds, and this chapter tells us why. Shepherding, it seems, was a dangerous business. Out in the open, sheep were vulnerable to attack from all kinds of wild animals, at, you know, at least, 
And David himself, we know, was a shepherd, had been a shepherd, and we heard him recounting to Saul back in chapter 17 some of the dangers that he had to face as a shepherd, where lions and bears would come and take away the sheep. That's what he had to deal with. It was a danger to the sheep and to the shepherds. But when Nabal came to his shearing season this year, remarkably, none of his 3,000 sheep were missing because David had been protecting them. We hear that from David in verse 7, and again later in verse 16, Nabal's own men tell of what a benefit it was to have David and his men there. Out in the open fields where there are no walls of protection around them, David's men were like a constant wall of protection, guarding them night and day. David himself and his men have been living on the land and on the run. And yet in that situation, they have refused to take anything that belongs to anyone else. And particularly, they've refused to take anything that belongs to Nabal. And instead, they devote their time and energy to protecting Nabal's men and sheep. And now Nabal is enjoying the benefits of that, the benefits of David's kindness and protection. And so in this moment, David reaches out to Nabal to ask for some hospitality, some kindness and generosity for him and his men while they're displaced and on the run. And so he sends 10 young men with a greeting and through them he submits himself to Nabal and makes his request. Now David and his men seem to think this was a fairly reasonable request. But this is where we see Nabal living up to the character that we were introduced to at the beginning in verse 3 and to his name, which we are told means fool. Nabal means fool. And so here we see Nabal's folly. Not just the foolishness of kind of making a bad decision, but the actions of a corrupt and godless heart. We're told in, in Psalm 14 that the fool says in his heart, there is no God and acts as if that is the case. And that's kind of what Nabal is doing here. And notice that he, he rejects David's offer, but he makes out like in his rejection that he's just worried about some kind of concern for social stability. He kind of exerts moral superiority over David's request. He says, you know, servants are, uh, are breaking away from their masters all the time these days. But that's just a thin veneer to try to cover his meanness and greed. He says, who is this David? In verse 11, is it? Who is this David? <clears throat> but he knows who David is. In fact, everyone knows who David is. Everyone knows that David was a war hero who fought great victories for Israel. They even sang songs about him. We heard the songs that they sing, songs that made Saul so jealous of David, songs that were so famous that the Philistines in the nation next door, they knew of David's fame as a war hero. In chapter 18, we're told that all of Israel loved David because he led them in their campaigns. And in a moment in verse 29 here, we're going to be told that Abigail knows the difficult situation that David is in, that someone is pursuing him to take his life. She knows the situation between David and Saul. And as I said, Nabal himself clearly knows a fair bit about David as well. 
Nabal even knows the situation that David is in, we saw, as he gives away when he says about servants breaking away from their masters. As if the situation that David was in with Saul was David's own choosing. He paints David like a criminal, as if he's starting some kind of revolt against Saul and willfully rebelling against him. But as I said, everyone knows what's actually going on for David, and it seems that Nabal is just deliberately choosing a negative narrative to put on David so that he can justify the greed and selfishness and his unwillingness to show hospitality. He completely dismisses David's own graciousness towards him and he responds exactly the way we've been told he is like, surly and mean, aggressive and rude. And now, in doing that, he has made an enemy of the greatest general in the country. He's lit a fuse that he cannot put out. As we see from what happens next, David's blood is boiling. David is furious at what has happened. Not just because Nabal didn't give him what he asked for. That seems to be kind of secondary on the list. But the rudeness, the, the, the aggressiveness, the insults. He didn't just reject his request. Verse 14 tells us that he hurled insults at them. And David responds here in a way that I suspect we often do. I know that I do when we are wronged in this kind of way. Nabal has added insult to injury and David is furious. How could he treat me like this? And now David's reaction is pretty extreme, right? He vows to kill every male in Nabal's household. David's been wronged and insulted. He's been repaid evil for good and he will not stand for it. And he has the power to do something about it. He's got his men with him. He's got his swords with him and he fully intends to use them. He's going to take the justice that he deserves. And you know, as is often the case when personal insult is involved, it can distort our vision of what justice should look like as I think was the example with me in the car park. You know, I really wanted to see that guy get what was coming to him. I wanted to see him getting fired or something like that, rather than just fixing my door. We can see that in David's case, but he can't see it yet. Insult can distort our vision of what justice looks like, as I said. He, David has the power to take the vengeance that he deserves for the wrongs that were done to him. That's David's anger. But now we see Abigail's wisdom. This is where Abigail's wisdom speaks into this picture. Abigail was everything her husband was not. Nabal is aggressive and rude, dismissive and ungenerous. Abigail is wise and gracious, humble and generous. And in no time at all, she manages to pull together a food package which kind of meets the original request that David had made, as well as kind of going to placate David's anger. And she goes to meet him humbly and bows with her face to the ground and apologises on behalf of her husband. But even more than that, with, with kind of profound, almost prophetic insight, she helps David to become the kind of king that he needs to be. See, there is no doubt that Nabal has acted foolishly and Abigail admits exactly that. But the bigger issue that Abigail sees and that we see it through her 
is how will David respond to that? And that's what Abigail addresses. It's a question of vengeance. Will David choose to avenge himself and to shed blood in an act of revenge and self-vindication or will he entrust vengeance to God and leave it in God's hands? And as I said, Abigail speaks with almost prophetic insight. She says, now, right now, David, you are on the run for your life. In verse 29, she says that. But God will establish your throne. And not just your throne, he will establish a future dynasty for you, a line of kings in your descendants after you. And so the question is, what will be the mark of your future dynasty? What will be the mark of your kingdom that you reign over? Will it be marked by the stain of bloodshed, by the stain of taking vengeance into your own hands? As she says in verse, 25, verse 31, sorry, the staggering burden of having needless bloodshed on your conscience because you chose to avenge yourself for the wrongs done to you. See, she doesn't deny the wrongs that were done to him. They were real wrongs. But she challenges the action that he intends to take. He intends to take revenge himself. That's the choice that is before David. And Abigail's mission is to show him that and to put him onto the right path, to stop him on his current path towards bloodshed. And before we continue, I want us to notice how similar this situation is to what we saw last week with King Saul. Do you remember last week David had a kind of a similar opportunity, a similar situation, and it turns out actually Nabal and Saul are quite similar in their character. And like with Nabal, David had the opportunity to avenge himself against Saul by shedding his blood, by taking his life. Now, when it came to Saul, he didn't. Even when his men were encouraging him to, he didn't. And the thing that stopped him was, he said, Saul is the Lord's anointed. It is not my place to take action against the Lord's anointed. The question that Nabal raises for David is, how will he react? How will this future king react in a similar situation with a different person? Someone who is not the Lord's anointed, but who has wronged him nonetheless. Will he be the kind of king who takes vengeance into his own hands? And the answer we discover is nearly, but thankfully no. Have a look at what David says in verse 33. May you be blessed for your good judgment and for keeping me from bloodshed this day and from avenging myself with my own hands. Abigail's message has worked. She has prevented David from taking vengeance into his own hands and in doing this, we're discovering the kind of king that David needed to become, that he is becoming, that when he has the power to act, to take revenge into his own hands, he doesn't do it. That's the kind of king that God wants over his kingdom. And as we're often seeing in the example of David, this character of God's king is just a glimpse of what we see in David's descendant 
who will rule over God's forever kingdom, that is Jesus. The kind of treatment that Jesus experienced at the hands of his creation, we can can identify with being badly treated and insulted to a degree, but what Jesus experienced on the cross as they were crucifying him, not just killing him, but insulting him, hurling insults at him for claiming to be who he actually was and mocking him for that. But listen to the words of Peter as he reflects on how Jesus responded to that. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, he says, When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered... He made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus entrusted himself to the justice of God. See, Jesus was so confident and so secure that God always sees and always judges with justice that it freed him from acting on that burning desire to retaliate and get revenge that that we know all too well, that comes so naturally to us. It freed him from that. And not only did he not retaliate, even more staggeringly, he offered forgiveness. You know, those, those staggering words that Jesus offered on the, on the cross, Father, forgive them. While they were killing him, while they were ridiculing him, while they were hurling insults at him. That is remarkable. But that is the character of our king because he trusts in the justice of his father. And what he did on the cross, what Jesus did on the cross, not just those words that he said, but the act that it was, changes the kingdom that Jesus rules over to one where mercy and forgiveness can reign. At the same time as knowing that God's perfect justice is served. And that's something that we benefit from. And that's the character that he wants us also to express towards others. He wants it to be the character of his kingdom and the character of his people. And so just a bit further on in 1 Peter, after he comments on what Jesus was like on the cross, he tells us what we should be like when we experience wrong, when we experience insult. In chapter 3, verse 9 of 1 Peter, do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult. On the contrary, repay evil with blessing. It's easy to say, not so easy to do sometimes. Just like Jesus, though, we can do that and we can only do that if we trust that God will do justice in his timing. Whatever wrong we are experiencing, God will do justice. But if we do trust him in that, then it frees us from needing to take revenge. You know, we call it justice, but that's what it is. It's revenge. You know, we're not likely, I suppose, to do what David was intending and go out and murder someone's entire family. But perhaps we are likely to take that passive-aggressive comment to hold a grudge because we can't let go of what was done to us, to make someone else feel bad or look bad because we felt bad or we were made to look bad. Or we think that just ignoring someone is okay, as long as we're not being openly hostile. But that's not what it says here. It says, 
Bless those who curse us. Not just neutral, but positive. Bless those who curse us. Repay evil with blessing. And I don't know about you, but sometimes that can feel like a bitter pill to swallow. When I've been wronged and when I've been insulted, that's what I want to do. I want to get revenge. But we need to understand that it is such a freeing thing to be able to give up the anger and the bitterness and the resentment of past wrongs because we know that we can leave it in God's hands, because we know that he sees and he deals with it. It frees us from that corrosive desire that revenge creates in us, that eats away at our hearts. Or it frees us from taking that wrong action, the guilt of of taking that wrong action that we think we deserve to give us the satisfaction that we want to feel. Jesus has shown us the kind of king that God wanted over his kingdom. And so the question that we're left with is, what kind of people are we going to be as we follow that king? So let me finish by asking some questions of us. Are you that kind of person who people say, well, they're a nice person, but you don't want to get on their wrong side? You don't want to offend them. You don't want to get them angry because they will hold a grudge. Is that the kind of person that we are? Or as a church, what are we like together? Are we one that is stained or that might be stained by the bad blood of past wrongs that we cannot get over, that we are holding on to? Is that what followers of Jesus are like? Or are we going to be the person who is quick to forgive? The people where forgiveness reigns because we trust that God has justice in his hands and we can leave that to him confidently. I know that some of us will have no trouble at all thinking of a situation that this applies to. Maybe a very real and present situation where you've been badly treated and not just badly treated but, but made to feel bad or wronged or, or insulted along the way. Maybe there's a real issue at the heart of it but, but the thing that really stings is the offence the rudeness that goes with it, the insult, the accusations against your character, making you look bad. It's what we call adding insult to injury. And the insult often feels that much worse. But even if you're not feeling that right now, there will be a situation at some point in the future for sure. The question is, what will we be like in those situations when we face that? What kind of people will we be? Will we be people who are remarkably different to what we might expect in that situation? It is entirely natural, let me say, it is entirely natural to want to take matters into your own hands and to get some kind of justice. I'm not talking about just being repaid for, for some kind of damage done. I'm talking about the satisfaction of seeing someone get what's coming to them. It's entirely natural to want that. The satisfaction of revenge, of seeing someone face the consequences for, being, for making you feel the way that they've made you feel. It's natural. But that is not what our king is like. And it's not how he wants his people to be. So will we be the kind of people, will, will you be the kind of person who is so conscious of the justice and the mercy of God that you can leave it to him, 
that we can trust him, that he will do what is good and right. And as I said, it really is so freeing to be able to give up the bitterness and the resentment of past wrongs and to know the peace and the clear conscience that goes with that. Because there is nothing, there is no thing big or small that gets your blood boiling that God doesn't also see. God sees it. And God is the God of perfect justice. And so we don't need to take revenge into our own hands. And that is freeing, if only we will trust him in that. Let's pray that we will. Heavenly Father, we do want to trust you, and yet we know the situations that, that we feel like we need to take revenge into our own hands, and we ask that you'll help us to, for our trust to extend to that, to know the goodness of your perfect justice, so that we can leave it in your hands and not, and not try and take it on ourselves. And Father, we ask that you'll help us to know the peace and, and the goodness that comes from that. In Jesus' name, amen.